welcome to Meet the PAs podcast. Hear the experiences of seasoned PAs, up and coming development of policy from industry leaders, and the exploration of those new to the career. Interviews done with a Canadian twist at Maple Syrup. Rachel and Becky here from the CAP conference, the Canadian Association of Physician Assistants, and we are here with Chris Rule today, who is the uh, current president of, of CAPA, and we are interviewing him. So, uh, so Chris, welcome. Thank you. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, we're excited to have you. Okay, so why don't you start by telling us where you you currently are at and with your your jobs and your titles and roles and how that involves others in Canada as well. <laughs> sure. So interestingly enough, um, at the very end of my term as president of uh, the Canadian Association of Physician Assistants, I've been president for four years now, so I'm ready to hand the reins over and, <laughs> and uh, let someone else run with it, get some fresh uh, ideas and fresh movement going. And I'm currently kind of taking a sub- sabbatical from, from my clinical work as a PA, and I've been doing lots of uh, traveling uh, on my own uh, to kind of uh, experience the world and do you know the, all those, those things that I missed uh, when I was younger, uh, and it's been just fantastic. So between Kappa and traveling, that's uh, pretty much my life right now. Awesome. Uh, yeah, I think that's that's pretty much a dream for most of us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I feel very fortunate. Uh-huh. <laughs> Tell us a little bit more about your traveling over the last year. Yeah, so I've been traveling around the world. Um, you know, in between breaks of coming back to do Kappa events and meetings. It's been, it's been a lot of like uh, 2 a.m. teleconferences and stuff because I've been <laughs> on the other side of the world. Uh, but uh, it's definitely uh, worked out really well, you know, because we're in that uh, era of telecommunication now. And so you can, you know, just like a PA can practice remotely. As president, I, I basically do my presidency remotely for the most part, unless I have to be back, you know, for some key strategic meetings or uh, conferences or, you know, the like. So it's made it very doable, uh, and, and it's been it's, it's it's much easier than I thought it would be when I was contemplating traveling at this period with uh, the responsibilities of being in office as president of a national association. Uh, but it's worked out fantastic. So yeah, because you actually have been traveling it for a good portion of your tenure. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. For over half of my tenure. Yeah. So I've uh, been, like I said, I've been traveling the world. I've been through. Over 40 countries now, uh, like 45 maybe in that range. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So it's been amazing. But it's all come to an end now. I'm at the very end of my travel. Uh, so it's time to think about getting back to the real world. <laughs> the harsh, cold reality of Canada. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So can you bring us back to the beginning and how did you enter the PA profession? How did you hear about it and what, what brought you to that? And also, in particular, um, you had your training in the States, so how that interplayed with Canada as well. Sure. You know, I had no idea about uh, physician assistants uh, at an early age. Absolutely no idea about anything to do with healthcare growing up. It was never something I wanted to, to get into. I, I just had no knowledge about it, no experience with it. Because when you're young, you don't ever really seek medical attention. So you don't, <laughs> you don't see that world. Right. And so I ended up uh, moving to the States when I was about 20, 21 years old and joined the U.S. Navy. And uh, in the U.S. Navy, I unfortunately ended up having 
some tumors found in my spine. And this is right towards the end of my enlistment, I ended up having to go for spine surgery uh, wow. to get the tumors removed. That must have been scary. Yeah, it was really scary. And, you know, that was my first exposure to the healthcare system, really. And from a patient's perspective, it was really interesting. Um, so I got to, to see the, the world from a completely different light at that point and was fascinated by the whole, you know, healthcare setting, the hospital setting. It was like its own little microcosm, you know, this, its own little environment that was totally unique, you know, to anything I've ever experienced before. And so, you know, thank goodness the surgeries went well and it was a long, you know, over one to two year recovery from it. But after I, I recovered from it, I realized that um, my kind of Navy days were done at that point uh-huh. and I had to look for something else to do. And I was intrigued by healthcare, so uh, it was kind of my, my push to get into medicine. Uh, as an aside, I mean, as, during my recovery phase while I was still in the Navy, they gave me light duty after uh, several months of recovery, and I was exp- my light duty was in a hospital, uh, oh, in, a, in a patient administration office, and so I got exposure to more of the healthcare setting and uh, talked to uh, resp- respiratory therapists and PAs and decided that was the route I wanted to do. And so I went to, to school and became a respiratory therapist initially and then went to PA school uh, right after that. Wow, so you did have a couple professions that brought you into it. Wow, mm-hmm. impressive. I'm so sorry that that traumatic experience happened. That's, it's really awful. Yeah, it worked out, worked out fine. So, yeah. And got you to be a PA. So. That's, exactly. <laughs> that is the only reason that, that I ended up in the profession, that's for sure. Wow, impressive. So then um, did you actually practice in the States as well as a, as a PA? Yeah, so I did my, my schooling in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. Um, and after I graduated, my first job was in Wisconsin in cardiac surgery. And so I worked uh, in Wisconsin for a couple of years. And uh, then I saw an opportunity to get a little bit closer to home and mm-hmm. took a job in uh, internal medicine as a hospitalist uh, in Duluth, Minnesota. My home state. Uh, yeah, and a beautiful place too. Yeah. Yeah, really beautiful. And it was while I was practicing there that I ran into the founder of the of kind of the Kappa and, and uh, the Tom Ashman at one of the USPA conferences. Uh, and he kind of, uh, we, we did a, did a, had a long chat about uh, PAs because I didn't even know they had them in Canada at the time. And so he filled me in on the military history of PAs and that there was some potential exciting opportunity in the civilian world for PAs in Manitoba. Uh-huh. So he gave me kind of the contact information for uh, some of the key players in, in, uh, in Manitoba to contact about PAs. Because they had actually been really forward thinking and passed some legislation in 1999 to allow PAs to practice under a category called clinical assistance. So they had already regulation in place, and but didn't have any PAs yet. Wow, good regulation in, yeah. in place for a long time before PAs really. Yeah, it's pretty impressive actually. And so I made contact, and, and they were thrilled, that, you know, because they really wanted to get a PA into the mix and see how the model worked, because they had heard about it from other people who had U.S. experiences with PAs, and they had formulated this legislation hoping to start a program that didn't really get anywhere. And so, yeah, I jumped all over it and uh, moved from Minnesota then to uh, Winnipeg. And uh, in doing so, I became the uh, first uh, licensed uh, PA in Canada back in May of 2003. Wow. Wow, that's impressive. I was not aware that it actually started that far back. 
Yeah. yeah. I thought it was like 2005. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but yeah. And I mean, it, it was a, it's been an incredible experience, and I'm very grateful of the experience I had because, you know, when do you get an opportunity to jump into a profession in its infancy anywhere? You know, and, right, be and, that trailblazer. And, and be, yeah, have that opportunity to, to make a difference and to be right on the edge, you know, of cutting through and, and you know, making a path for a profession. So I'm extremely fortunate for just being in the right place at the right time and making the right connections. And yeah, it was kind of interesting. And how was your transition being the very first, I mean, not just first PA at that particular location, but first in the province is. It's very impressive in that there's a lot of little things. No one would have heard of you. you yeah. know, getting getting approvals to order things and, and I taking your patients. You know, I was very fortunate because I've always been fairly confident. And mm-hmm. so that made a big difference in practicing in a new environment. Because if, you, if you're not confident, then that shows. And mm-hmm. you don't get as far with the less confidence, right? So yeah, I think yeah, I kind of hit the ground running. I demonstrated the model um, uh, to the physicians and and the uh, system uh, in the early, early days, like in the first few months. And they thought it was fantastic. The the physicians loved it. Uh, The surgical program loved it. They'd had some pretty tough experiences using some IMGs in different roles Mm -hmm. up until that point, and it hadn't worked out. And so, yeah, being the first PA, I got the opportunity to really kind of demonstrate the model to them, and they were all over it. Yeah, wow. Point. So you you were in the OR as well? Yeah. Uh, in Winnipeg, I wasn't uh, initially. A little bit in the OR. Um, I was in the U.S., but in, uh, a little bit in the OR. Their big thing that they wanted to do was they wanted me to come in in a cardiovascular role and do basically hospitalist type of okay. man- management right. because that's where their real need was. Um, mm-hmm. They had surgical assists, uh, like surgeons that were assisting in their right. surgeries, okay. and, and that was well established already. Uh, but what they, they really lacked was the good quality care afterwards. Inpatient. And the nurses really needed the, the support because they weren't getting prompt attention. The surgeons were so busy and in the OR all the time that this was something that um, as soon as you know it was demonstrated to them and, and they kind of caught on really quick and they, they loved the, the model because they had immediate attention to right. whatever their, their needs were. Right. And their patients' needs, obviously. Yeah, because that's the thing when the nurse calls you're like I need you know I'm not calling you because I think it's fun I need something yeah I need no. the order I Absolutely. need the order I need, it just you know, comes down to basics my patient's yeah. going sour please come and look at them mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely yeah. The, the nursing staff loved the model right away because it made such a quick impact into their daily lives and their patient's daily life obviously impressive yeah so uh, basically I was only there for probably three months and then they started throwing me into kind of administrative roles uh, oh. which was totally new for me because I was still a fairly young PA at that point as well so they had big expectations and big hopes that they put on me um, and so they, they basically kind of gave me a, uh, an opportunity to start a program within the Department of Surgery in the main hospital in Winnipeg which is Health Science Center. Mm-hmm. And so, like I said, three months into it, here I am, you know, doing education sessions to the surgical staff and of the physicians and, and the Department of Surgery and the WHA, the Winnipeg Regional Health Authority. And yeah, so it was, that was totally out of my normal environment and it was a bit <laughs> scary, that's for sure. 
Um, but yeah, that's how I basically started the program in Manitoba was through that process of developing a program through the Department of Surgery. Dr. Lewis Oppenheimer, who was the head of surgery at the time, was a huge advocate for PAs and a real champion uh, for PAs. And he and Brock Wright, who was the, the vice president of the WHA, were basically sold on the model early. And they were big champions that really helped move it along and gave me the support that I needed to develop it. Excellent. So from there, that brought you over to then the university. Continue the program. Yeah, so I developed it further through the Department of Surgery, and I hired uh, a few real key PAs early on, mm -hmm. uh, like the next year. I was able to hire PAs like Ian Jones, who's now the mm -hmm. program director of the University of Manitoba PA right. educational program. I hired Russ Ives, and he's now in my former role as the Manitoba director of physician assistance. Trevor Stone, uh, who's uh, the Prairie chapter president and now coming as president-elect for, for Kappa. He'll be taking my job over in a few days, which is fantastic. <laughs> and I couldn't ask for a better person to do it. He's going to be an excellent president. So yeah, I was able to hire some key players like that early on, and they all did a fantastic job, you know, uh, kind of demonstrating the profession as well and championing it alongside with me and developing the role and and the key strategic kind of relationships with other surgeons and physicians that was able to kind of allow us to get that expansion further going. So, you know, after a few years of that, I was able to work with the health authority, the university, to get a steering committee formed for the first, what was going to be the first PA program in Canada, educational program in Canada with the University of Manitoba. So we sat and, and formed the steering committee and, you know, what do you know, a couple of years later we had a program and uh, now, like I said, Ian Jones is the director of that program and is doing fantastic. So Manitoba kind of was the trailblazer and uh, has got the longest history of PAs and uh, continues to do a fantastic job. Yep. Yeah. They're definitely ahead of us on legislation, legislation <laughs> and regulation and licensure and prescription abilities. Yes, yeah, yep. we're a bit behind here. <laughs> and how did you find the transition moving from clinical to non-clinical practice? Do you were you missing that clinical side? Was it did it feel fairly smooth for you? I always did a combined administrative clinical role, so it was pretty much you know forty percent administrative, 60% clinical initially, and okay. then it was 60% administrative and 40% clinical after over time. And so I always kept uh, my, my hand in the clinical side because I didn't want to give that up and I really enjoyed the clinical side. But I was really getting to enjoy the administrative side as well. The difficulty with the administrative side is, you know, it's a bureaucracy that you have to deal with in government and things move much, much slower than you want them to move. And so there's a lot of frustrations and and so it, it, that was a tough thing to learn and a tough thing to, you know, kind of deal with over, over time. You know, people don't understand how difficult to, and slow of a process of changing anything to do with government is, never mind health care, when it's so established. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, it's really pretty notable that you were able to be the first PA implementing clinical practice and then so quickly move into a role that brought more PAs into practice and then began educating them. Uh, it's really quite impressive. It's a huge undertaking. Yeah, it, it, it was a massive undertaking, <laughs> yeah, for the first several years, for sure. But, I mean, I was driven, and, and so were, you know, my colleagues that, uh, that I hired early on. Like I said, those key first 
uh, PAs were fantastic at, at moving the profession forward and were excellent PAs and, and so that made it uh, all that much easier to kind of demonstrate the model, you know, to uh, everyone in healthcare and for the public as well. The patients saw the care they were getting. Uh, they saw they they saw that how timely it was, you know, how efficient it was, and the quality of care that a PA could bring, and they bought into it Im immediately. You know, they went from not knowing us and calling us doctor all the time to like. Where's my PA? <laughs> you know. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think uh, we're still feeling like the where's my doctor is the question that happens around here or, a lot. When are you done your training? When are you done with your training? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so after establishing kind of the profession in the Department of Surgery and at getting the university program up and running around the same kind of time frame, I was then put into a regional role as the director for the PA program for the Winnipeg Regional Health Authority uh -huh. uh, in, in Winnipeg. And I did that for a few years and then eventually became the provincial director for um, for PAs in, in all of Manitoba and kind of worked with Manitoba Health and as well as the WHA um, and practiced clinically at that time too. And found time to do some consulting work along the way yeah, as well. Yeah, start a new business, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. When do you yeah. sleep? Yeah, I didn't sleep much back then. <laughs> no wonder you needed some time to travel and rest. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> okay, so talk to us a bit about your consultancy business. Yeah, so it, it never really took off as a full business. It was kind of more of a side business that, mm -hmm. that I set up, uh, mostly because I really didn't know any other way to kind of push the profession forward in other parts of the country without kind of putting a, a private kind of sector feel to it in a consultancy role. Because I had worked with governments um, um, in Ontario as part of like the initial pilot projects way back in 2006 and seven. I was presenting to their steering committee and I wrote the initial uh, competency profile documents as a co-author co co and all that. Back then, with uh, some great people as well, Nadia McHale and Pierre Ozone, who were also doing some consulting work for the Ministry of Health and Long-Term Care in Ontario at that time. And, and I also kind of worked with developing the first Ontario program at uh, McMaster and, and worked with you know the very beginning phase when they use IMGs as PAs mm -hmm. and developing that kind of transitional education model for them because, you know... I was really afraid of what was going to be the product uh, without real PA involvement in that, because the ministry was, you know, bent on using IMGs in that role, no matter what we were saying. So I, I felt it was really important that we had PA input and physician input uh, in that phase of the rollout of the pilot projects, so that whatever IMGs were being put in there were at least going to get a bit of a solid PA learning base uh -huh. before they were put into the practice. And so that was part of the consultancy. Uh, and then I've done like consultancy of private pra like private practices and uh -huh. family medicine. Yeah, team team uh -huh. kind of building with PAs in the mix and how that uh, interprofessional team can function and overlap and worked with um, other health authorities in other provinces that were interested in developing pilot projects for their provincial governments that, you know, some, a lot of them didn't go anywhere because they didn't get the government uh, go-ahead, yeah. uh, which was unfortunate. They were already kind of to go and they, they invested their, you know, time and, and, and money into getting these things kind of developed. 
but unfortunately, you know, some just don't go. It's just government and politics. So, so off of that, can you describe where these places have been? I mean, have they been in provinces that that are still currently not using PAs? And if so, do you see a future of bringing PAs to to these other provinces and territories in Canada? Yeah, I think a lot of the work was was done uh, in provinces that eventually did get PAs, but a lot of it was, was done in provinces that still don't have PAs, uh-huh. due, due mostly to political uh, you know, reasons more than anything, because there is uh, pretty much in every province out there that I've had contact with, and I've spoken to medical associations, physicians, uh, and various stakeholders in almost every province and territory, and with few exceptions, the demand and the want for PAs is out there, and it's the political want and right. will and will that usually gets in the way because our numbers are so small that we don't have the political clout like a nursing association would yeah you know because of numbers and, and votes and money which is really unfortunate because uh, i think there's a lot of folks out there that understand how compliment complementary the role can be with you know nurses yeah, and other other healthcare right? professions and, team, and, and physicians team. exactly yeah. everything's leaning in that direction all the results are showing better productivity better uh, performance better outcomes on all these different levels with an interdisciplinary team that functions well together and the maximum scope of practice right so uh, the governments are just slow to on the uptake uh, and mostly because of you know their bureaucracies first of all and it's pl- very political um, so for example if you can, I don't know if you can. If you can get a little bit more specific, for example, I believe is it New Brunswick that has two PAs? Yeah, they've got two PAs, so, and they've had yeah. them since like twenty two thousand eight, so, I think. Yeah, a long time. Where there seems to have been, there's legislation in place, there's funding model in place. You know, things that we are lacking in Ontario, but then their numbers are so low, mm-hmm. and the education, obviously, the university education piece isn't there. They have to go somewhere else for that. Is that going to be moving do you see that moving forward or are we stuck in politics there where's the yeah i I was involved with that initial rollout of the pas in the er uh, in new brunswick and was talking to the various stakeholders uh, about uh, putting together this pilot project and the model and in the early days and you know i think the pas have done very well in 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 that pilot project there's good data uh, that um that they've had a big impact into the the er practice and throughput and and all the other indicators and so the big question's always been like why why did it stop there you know Mm -hmm. why didn't it go any further um and we never really got any real answers from government about that you know it's only recently within the last year that we've had some pickup again from uh, from New Brunswick and it sounds like they are interested in moving forward with rolling PAs out in potentially other ERs and maybe even other kind of clinical practices in the province and so we are in discussions with uh, various stakeholders in that province as CAPA now to kind of make that a reality and I'm not sure if when that will be, I think it, it's definitely going to come. It's just a timing issue, I believe. Yeah, I it's definitely the weirdest thing. It seems like, so strange because it seemed to have been going so well. Like either so the smooth. provinces don't have them or they do, except for New Brunswick, which sort of, like, mm. it, like they've got the regulation and the funding model and these two, two PAs. That's, I think that's yeah. it. Yep. And it's just like, 
stopped, but they didn't yeah. stop funding those PAs. Those PAs, yeah, as far as I know, still have their jobs. Right. So it's really bizarre. It's, it's a very unusual bizarre. situation. Yeah, very like, unusual situation. We can't get into Newfoundland or Nova Scotia or um, any of the territories. BC is a sort of a maybe. But yeah, New Brunswick's sort of this weird, really weird situation. Yeah, I think, you know, been, we've been, you know, practicing in Canada in the civilian sector, like I said, for 14 years mm. now, and it has been slow to evolve. However, we've done it much quicker than some places, mm-hmm. um, just because we've had experience to build from, from other jurisdictions. And as frustrating as it is, we're actually doing it very well compared to some places in, in their history. However, with that said, there's places like the UK now, where there's an explosion of PAs. Mm-hmm. They're actually like actively recruiting US PAs, but the salary is not, 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 exactly not comparable. Not comparable at yeah. all. And the, the salary is not comparable. That's for sure. And it's you know in Europe in particular, you know it's a it's a different uh, setup. The salaries are lower. In, that's just in how Europe. that's just how, how it works. Yeah, if you're in a, a socialized uh, medicine system in Europe, you don't get paid the same as you get paid in Canada and in the United States. So uh, their doctors get paid a lot less than our doctors do too, for the most part. And there are exceptions, obviously, but for the most part, they're paid much less than, than Canadian physicians and American physicians are. So the, it, it's a kind of a relative kind of thing. You know, the PAs are paid a lot less here than the physicians are paid for the most part and there there's a similar kind of ratio and but since the physician right, salaries so. are, lo- yeah. are, are lower are yeah. lower the PAs are also lower right. but it's been an incredible uh, kind of uh, buy-in from the UK government in recent times where they've now gone all in on PAs and so you know I think there's there was less than 500 practicing PAs a year ago, and now they're they're expecting 3,000 PAs. 3,000. By 2020. Oh, by 2020. Okay. Wow. So, still, that's only three that's years incredible. away. Well, that's incredible. They, they've, they've ramped up their their students, their schools. They've they've put out uh, requests for proposals from schools, and it's almost a kind of a scary expansion because it's gone so quickly. That that's a big thing for the health re- system to absorb. Yeah, you can't really control it when it's that fast, right? So are they having, and I don't, maybe you don't know, but can you speak to the, the job availability? Like if we're having lots of students pour out at once in the UK, are there jobs for those students when they graduate? Yeah, like I said, the government's all in. They so ha- they're they, they're going to place all of the students that they can uh, into primary, all, all different settings, but a lot of it's primary care for sure. They're giving incentives to practices to hire them. They're they're paying for part of the education for the for the PAs. So like that's a it's a big tab they're they're they're, they're yeah. picking up because of this big expansion. When you've got like three thousand PAs in school over the next mm-hmm. two two years, three years. That's a lot of, of uh, resources that they're they're tying up, you know, to help support this pro- these programs. Yeah, and even just working them into like being able to do their clerkship, like working them into the rotation. Absolutely. Right. With the, all the other medical learners, like the like administration of that must be astronomically, like, it's huge, astronomical, huge. and yeah. just I can really difficult. I wouldn't want to be part yeah. of that administrative role and trying to organize that that would be yeah huge. I, I just came back from london uh, the uk conference and and yeah i mean they're super energized and excited but also very wary because of 
how fast is expanding mm-hmm. in the and the, the, the to the degree of expansion is like they're gonna surpass us this year in numbers of PAs and we've been going at it for you know longer. long lot longer and within three to five years they're gonna dwarf us in, in numbers wow. just because the government's like I said really? going all in and bought into the model and yeah, it's going to be really impressive to see. So I'm assuming then that also means their scope of practice will be appropriate as yeah, well. Yeah, so they're working on regulation as well and all the issues that are going to be growing mm-hmm. pains for them. You know, with all that you can imagine, like new programs, you know, there's a worry of everyone getting the same quality education and competencies across the board being similar, if not the same. And, you know, so there's going to be some real headaches, I think, for them in the next few years because of how fast it's expanding. They haven't had the time to absorb it all and prepare for it like mm-hmm. we have here. Mm-hmm. And so it's going to be really interesting to see. There's going to be some definite negatives that come out of it, I'm sure. But I think overall, hopefully, if they can get past those negatives, uh, it will be fantastic for the profession there. No kidding. Okay. Yeah. How about in comparison to some of the other European and, and other countries internationally, that MZPs, yeah. Australia, and... Yeah, well, the Netherlands. the Netherlands has got a fantastic PE program. We, the Canadian Association's CAP has been really involved with NAPA, the Netherlands mm-hmm. Association of PAs, for several years now. And I've been kind of, Patrick Nelson, our executive director, and I have been really kind of heading up a, a real push to you know, formulate an international kind of, uh, uh, not association, but more of a alliance of some sort mm-hmm. or, or, you know, so we can get together and share you know, strategies, uh, the things that have worked, the things that haven't worked, and and just kind of use, you know, knowledge uh, on all sides of the pond uh, and across all borders to try and further our own programs in our own countries, as well as help new countries to develop their own program. Because I think developing internationally is super important for our profession at home. Exactly. You know, because you, you can point to all these different places where the model's working and it's no longer just in a few places anymore. It's no, no longer just the U.S. that we rely on for data because no one wants to hear about the U.S. healthcare system in Canada. Especially, right? like, true. yeah, our, so our medical system is a lot more similar to that of the U.K. or the Netherlands or Australia yes. or any of the other socialized medicine countries. So that data makes a lot more it's a lot more transferable. Right? Yeah, and the, there's PAs practicing in so many countries around the world now. It's, um, it's truly amazing. Um, like... <laughs> Germany has got a real explosion of PAs in that country as well. And they're just really, not, they don't even have an association or anything. It's all kind of home root grown mm-hmm. uh, push in different practices and hospitals to try and get PAs. And so their educational programs have kind of sprung up based on the, wow. this homegrown need and, and want of PAs. Wow. And uh, so they're, they're at a, another totally different dilemma of even trying to formulate an association to guide it right it's needed yeah it's needed for sure so i got a chance to speak to the the, one of the people kind of innovating in germany as as one of their first PAs. uh uh, so yeah it's just really interesting so you've been speaking with someone in germany to help them formulate an association i've just been speaking with them and bantering things back and forth about what's worked and what hasn't worked and where they're at just because you know they're really unknown about because because there's no formal association mm-hmm. it's all just kind of you know second you know hearing second hand from people um so i wanted to connect and informally have some introductions when i was over at the uh, ucapa conference 
so that was good. And I mean, this is why it's so important to connect with these international PAs and international PA leaders, because there's so much that can come out of it. Eventually, maybe even reciprocity. Like the UK is talking about total reciprocity. Um, with, with Canada. With all with all of PAs, them. as wow. long as they meet us a certain criteria. So there have been real trailblazers over there. We've had that discussion many times in CAFA about reciprocity uh, and protectionism and all the other issues that go along with that. And we've had discussions with the U.S. Yeah. Uh, over the last few years. You know, uh, again, Patrick Nelson and myself have you know, had several meetings now with the ARC-PA, NCCPA, AAPA, and all the PA associations, <laughs> associations down in the U.S. And, you know, we were, I think, at a point where we were, fa- we were fairly confident of the potential for reciprocity happening within the next couple of years until the AAPA and NCCPA went to battle. And head to head yeah, right they're, now. They're yeah. still in battle. <laughs> and so that's kind of thrown a huge wrench into that reciprocity talk because, yeah, we had actually had our, not only our foot in the door, but we were probably pushing our body through the door uh, <laughs> you know, after some of our last discussions and putting the positivity that was coming from all these different associations about the timing of it being the right time now. And then because of the infighting that's happening down there, that's obviously been way put on the back burner. Yeah. So for those of you who don't, who aren't aware, just to bring it to see, the two main bodies, the AAPA, so the American Association of Physician Assistants, and the NCCPA, the body that, that regulates the exam, have been in disagreement as to how that exam should be given, how frequently, and what type of exam to be given. So... And, and as of right now, they have not come to a, a final agreement, mm-hmm. that, and as far as I'm aware. Yeah, they're getting closer, I think. But the, the whole recertification process is a big issue for them right now, and that they're, that I'm hoping they'll come to terms and uh-huh. come back together. So you, U.S. trained PAs have to recertify every five to ten years, depending on where they are in their track, and that is where the disagreement is. If you're recertifying, should you recertify as a generalist? Do you recertify if you've been in surgery, et cetera, right? Yeah. Yeah. And what should that look like? What should that look like? Is a test necessarily, a written test, necessarily a good way to demonstrate that you are competent to continue practicing and you've been picking up all these new innovations and uh, along the way in your practice? yeah, I mean, there is some good reasoning behind, I think, the questioning and the change and in, in push for a different model, you know, but you're going to have people on both sides that are really, really stuck, you know, in the way they want it to be, and so it's going to be a tough battle. But I mean, I don't, at least to my knowledge, are there any other professions that have to write a new exam every five years? There are some recertifications in other professions, and there are some physicians that have to yeah. maintain a certification. Some, some physicians yeah. do. So like an exam, though? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like internal I- I- internists do. They have to rewrite the the board's exam. I don't know how frequent what the frequency is that they do in the I don't states. think they do here. Here, I, I'm. I don't. There are don't. there are some uh, physician uh, specialty groups that, that do in Canada. Yeah. So it's, we're, not, like, we're not. PAs aren't unique. Family docs don't. They just do yeah. the CME like everybody right. else, right? Hours, like they yeah. log their hours. They do their journal readings. They attend their conferences. Yeah, it's not whatever. unique to the PA profession to recertify, but we're one of the minority that that are required to do it. 
like in the U.S. Here in Canada, you know, we kind of adopted a long time ago the fact that if you maintain your CPD and, and clinical training along the way, then that was what was needed and, and required here. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see where this all falls out south of the border. And how that affects things up here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We are all affected by it. Okay. Oh, well, we haven't talked about Ontario, which for Rachel and I is... Home. Home. (laughs) In fact, for the majority of PAs in Canada, Ontario is home. And there's a lot of upheaval here where many PAs are concerned about job security and funding models and um, regulation. Mm -hmm. So uh, bring us up to speed. There have been some new proposals put out on the the table that I understand, right? So for years now, CAFA has been working very hard at trying to get some movement from uh, the Ministry of Health and Long-Term Care in Ontario to work on new funding models, job security for PAs, increasing the placements of PAs and, and the usage of PAs in various practice models regulation. I mean, on all fronts, we've been pushing hard, had lots of frustrations over the years dealing with with, with government in particular on this issue and the College of Physicians Surgeons of Ontario as well. I think this year's been a real turning point for us because, you know, from our perspective, the, the amount of effort that we put into Ontario, because it is such an important province and has the majority of PAs, we've continually over many years before I was president in particular but since I've, I've been president it's eaten up a, a huge amount of our time and resources and, and a lot of it was in frustration but this year seems to be a, a pivotal turning point I'm hoping and it looks like the government is now kind of getting more on board than they ever have they've always been supportive of PAs in the, in Ontario just I think again it gets down to the political will to, to do things and yeah. politics because again our numbers are so small that we don't have any influence you right. know on right. on the political system uh, from a block of voting like a nursing association would we don't kick up the same kind of you know stink if something isn't going our way or and we traditionally don't do that as PAs anyways right. but you know that uh, that is a, a big driver in politics and the fact that you know We've got an excellent uh, executive director who's got a lot of connections in Ontario healthcare. He's brought a lot to the table uh, for our association, and especially in Ontario, like I say. And I think, you know, just with sheer perseverance, we've been able to actually make a bunch of inroads over the last few years, and it's all kind of culminating, I think, this year. And now it looks like, you know, we have direct direction from the Minister of Health to CPSO to develop a regulatory framework. And so, you know, now the onus is going to be back on CPSO again to follow through on producing a regulatory framework. If PAs can get regulated in Ontario, it will make a massive difference to, you know, clinical practice. That's our opinion. Absolutely. We all have known that for years. You know, the HPRAC decision was wrong, and we all knew that right away, too. And it's hard to fight that, you know, decision, though, uh, because it's a large organization with a lot of respect uh, in the regulatory environment. So yeah, I mean, this year it looks like you know we're on track for regulation at some point in the future. Hopefully, uh, there's more commitment on funding. We're getting more kind of exposure in various uh, messaging from government now to both the healthcare system in general, like mm-hmm. the family health teams and other different areas of, of the health uh, 
environment as well as to the public you know like it's, right. they've been mentioning PAs more and more in the last few years and well, this year again it seems to be even one step more than it has been uh, so I think it's all finally culminating after many years of frustrations uh, uh, you know uh, I think you know it's going to be something that's going to be challenging for this incoming president Trevor Trevor Stone to to kind of continue that pressure on government and 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 to make sure that they follow through on, on the progress uh, but I think you know he's in a good position he's got like, some great experience from coming from Manitoba and the environment there and the things that he's done uh, mm -hmm. in that province to really help this association you know into the future in regards to you know the movement of PA practice and, and, and the outcomes in the next few years in Ontario and what do you in your from your perspective do you feel individual PAs can do to kind of help move that along especially here in Ontario but as well as other provinces I mean that's by far hands down the most important piece of this whole puzzle you know of advocacy is the individual person the individual PA and in their practice advocating for yourself advocating for your profession and just demonstrating the model on a daily basis goes so far because now you're demonstrating it to the public the physicians and other healthcare professionals you work for and also government sees that as well the next step which is harder to get people to do which is which is just as important is to actually advocate outside of your clinical mm -hmm. practice to the communities at large and to politicians themselves yeah to, i think that, that gets hard board. that yeah. gets hard but especially because most of us are not don't feel politically minded mm -hmm. or for its own client what kind of what kind of support is kappa receiving from individual practicing pas on that second step you know i think you know i have to be honest with you i mean the pas in this country have blown me away over the years of how excellent they are at volunteering their time to you know help move the profession forward and, and to do things that are required to be done you know to to help kappa as an organization do these things you know people that come into the pa profession i think are fairly unique to begin with and <laughs> and they they kind of shine more so than i think other people in in other occupations i'm not sure why but that's just maybe my biased person <laughs> but, but i think they do a, a great job normally I, I do, however, think that, that that is one gap that does need to get better, uh, and that is from the advocacy, you know, from a personal perspective of each practicing PA outside of their clinical practice, you know, because most people do such a great job there. Yeah. But if they can get to the community level, engaging community leaders, and, and in various ways, there's so many ways you could do it in projects or just education, you know, or the next step after that obviously would be your MLAs and other political leaders to mm -hmm. get the political pressure onto the, you know, the parties, you know. So just by starting by writing a letter, Absol sending emails. Absolutely, meeting them in person, mm -hmm. writing a letter. It's a lot harder to say no to somebody in person. person. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And it, yeah, and it's hard to do. It takes your time to go do this and you're nervous because, you, you know, you, it's out of your elements and you, you haven't had to do anything like this before for most people. But if you can make that step through that threshold and, and, and just go do it that first time, I think then you'll, you'll be bought in to, to do it more often and, and to make a difference. And just simple things in the community, some, you know, small little projects, healthcare education of some 
sort, you know, mm-hmm. with, with the public uh, and involving the community leaders in that as well to, to kind of get their involvement. So there, there's, there's so many ways that we can do that. That's a great idea. Yeah, excellent idea. So what would you say is your proudest accomplishment as CAPA president? Ooh. Um, you know, I, you know, I think I don't I don't really have any proudest accomplishment personally because the association is just that. It's a group of people that have come together, volunteered their time on the board and countless other PAs and just in clinical practice that volunteer their time to do different projects and initiatives, you know, to, to, to make a difference. Yeah, so, like, I don't think, you know, I don't take much credit from an individual perspective, personally. I think, you know, it's an organization, an association that only functions because of a large number of people that volunteer their time and their services. And we have an awesome staff, you know, an awesome staff and an awesome executive director. So we're very fortunate from that perspective. And there's so many PEs out there that are driven to advocate and push the, the profession forward. Uh, so by no means am I you know, a, the biggest mover of this piece of the puzzle. Um, it's a, it, it belongs to so many PAs out there. And I just think you know, it, it's been demonstrated over the years you know, how much we've accomplished through this group effort you know, of people yeah. stepping up, volunteering their time to be on the board of uh-huh. CAPA. Uh, and to do all kinds of requests from CAPA to them in their local communities or in their province, you know. Uh, so I think, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of advocacy that gets done on the, you know, local level and just personal level by PEs that make the difference. But yeah, we, we've done lots of great things uh, in the last few years but while I've been president, uh, you know, as an organization and as a profession in general. You know, like the regulation that's going to be coming out of, in Alberta soon and the, the positive uh, results of the demonstration project that was in Alberta right. was huge and now they have it's an ed- educational program that's been developed and waiting on funding for that uh-huh. you know and we've uh, got the conference board uh, to do this uh, series of reports which I think is really instrumental I think if that it was one key thing in during my presidency that was real positive I think is that because the biggest thing that you need to speak with government and stakeholders with is data and we don't have enough data as a Canadian organization because because of the how young we are and, and our numbers yeah um, and so we learned over the years that you have to be able to back up your statements uh, and and uh, with data and so conference board is a, is, is a big rep- reputable organization that brings a lot of uh, clout I think to this um, this arena for us by publishing these reports and it's nothing surprising that's in there if anything they're a bit res- you know reserved in some of their forecasts mm-hmm. which is probably a good thing mm-hmm. you know but as PAs I think we all know that the, the results are going to be even better than, than they expect, than, than they expect. Yeah, yeah absolutely yeah, absolutely. yeah. And, and I think that there's that there's definitely lots of opportunity Okay, so um, can people contact you if they have questions, would like to get in, in touch with you? Do you have any any email, website? Yeah, I mean, that's a little bit difficult because uh, my consultancy has been kind of put on hold um, in the last couple of years with all the traveling, and, mm-hmm. and yep. uh, I'm, I'm not easily available. I guess I'll be the past president of CAPA mm-hmm. uh, as of 
you know, after this weekend. Yeah. Uh, so they can always email me through Kappa. Okay. I'm very good at uh, checking in and answering my, all my Kappa emails, um, no matter where I am in the world. Uh, <laughs> and I'm more than happy to speak to anyone uh, about uh, anything to do with PAs, especially if it's coming from PAs. So they can definitely contact me through Kappa as a past president. Great. Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. No, thanks for having me. Yeah. Enjoy the rest of the conference. Thanks. You too. Take care. Should be great. Meet the PAs podcast is sponsored by pahelpers.ca, where you can find all your Canadian exam prep needs. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit us at mtppodcast.com. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe, and we would love your feedback.